So, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm with an old friend whom I'd not seen for, I don't know, 15 years? Oh, I don't think it's been that long. Maybe five years? Five? Okay, okay. I love to exaggerate. And those meetings, though, were pretty boring and not particularly memorable, so it's not surprising that you wouldn't remember some ICA business meeting. Yeah, but I think we met at Rutgers, actually, and that was more interesting. Well, that was, that's true. So, Linda Steiner, and it's great to be with you. We are in Oslo, Oslo, common Norway, as they say in the classics. I love it when people say Paris, France, right? (laughs) We're in Oslo, common Norway, and we just gave a great keynote today about uh, women, combat journalists, war correspondents, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I wanted to ask you, that's uh, the topic of some of your recent research, how do we define actually a war correspondent? It's not even a term people are using anymore, but I guess it was the term that these women would have understood. I think they did use that term, and by the way, I must say, you didn't do so shabbily yourself with your keynote address, and you got to go first. Um, uh, I do actually have a little trouble with terminology here. Yeah. And not so much with a work correspondent, but I do think that they want to use that term because they see themselves, and really this is what they do, and this makes what their work makes their work difficult if they're covering war and not just doing so-called foreign correspondence. I think that right. used to be the term foreign yeah. correspondence. But the idea was that the only time journalists got paid to do foreign correspondence was when they were covering wars. Yeah. Um, but now I think we really want to sort of credit the kind of risks that people take when they do that. So apart from the issue of who is a journalist. Yeah, yeah. Again, they, they definitely do want to, and, and I want all of that to call them war reporters or war correspondents. Um, the UNESCO project, by the way, deals with conflict reporters. They, yes, they conflict see themselves reporting. as conflict, yes. so that includes things like covering drug wars and that kind of thing. Or something like Colombia, where... Yes. Some people say it's a civil war, but for lots of people, including many people there, they call it the conflict. Right. Um, I do think the issues uh, can be different mm-hmm. um, when it's conflict, such as drug wars, especially in the context of one's own country. So going to another country and covering yeah. conflict there, right. I think, has special things. One of but what I was referring to with my sort of terminological, sort of pragmatical mm. quandary is mm. that, at least in in American English, we use the term female as both a noun and an adjective. Mm. Yeah. And women, or women in the singular, only as a noun, singular or plural. Um, but I don't want to call people female journalists or female war reporters or female reporters um, 
because I am really trying to conscientiously and consistently highlight gender as an issue. And so even though it's grammatically incorrect, mm. I refer to them as women war reporters. Women war reporters. Even though yeah. women is a noun. Yeah, but it's often used adjectivally, actually. I think, I think it should be. Yeah. And uh, after this project is completed, yeah. I hope you'll join me in uh, my campaign against using female or male to refer to gender. And all the time I see studies uh -huh. where people start off by saying, I want to study gender issues having to do with male and female journalists. And I think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Male and female are biological terms, whether they are adjectives or nouns. It yeah. refers to biology. And this isn't about biology. This is about gender. And actually, the point I was making today is it's really not even about gender. It's about sexism, and I think we should yeah. name yeah. it what it is. You, you gave us some wonderful examples, and I have to confess as a, an index of my lack of knowledge of journalism history, I'd only heard of one of the women that you spoke of. Oh, sorry, I mean, one of the women way back in the past right. that you spoke of. The more contemporary ones, of course, I Right. Know. And that was Webb. Um, the, one of the Kate Webb yeah. from Vietnam. Yeah, but the others I didn't know of, and you gave us examples dating back to the mid 19th century. Yes, Margaret um, Fuller. Yeah, yeah, and a number from the Spanish Civil War, for example, uh, various other wars. But again and again, there would be some element either to why they'd gone, been able to go somewhere from the United States in most cases, or what their experience had been there that was massively gendered and marked by sexism, wasn't there? It certainly was. A, they experienced a lot of sexism. I, I think a lot of it is just rivalry. Again, war reporting is a very uh, high status, Competitive I mean, high stakes, world. Yeah. but also high status. Yeah. Um, world and I think men at the time and to some extent uh, not so much now but certainly then wanted to preserve their monopoly over um, that domain and the way to do it was to say either that women would be sort of defeminized if they went there or there weren't facilities or that they would leak uh, military secrets or whatever excuse they could come up with. Mm. I think uh, at the time, even then, even in the 19th century, even in 1848, when Margaret Fuller went to cover the European Revolution, which she was, Which was when my family moved from Germany to the US, oh, by the way. Okay. After, well, after the 1848. There's revolution. always movement here and there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, women understood what was going on, but they were convinced that they could do it. And like, I'm not saying that there's no gendered aspect to it. Yeah. Um, and certainly a lot has been made about how women and men have covered wars differently. Um, the notion has long been, and this was very prominent, by the way, in the Vietnam War, when you referring to Kate Webb, that, yeah. that men covered battles and strategy yeah. and sort of arms and 
counted things and even counted deaths, counted casualties, while women focused on human dimensions, human impact, collateral damage. So-called um, human interest stories. Yeah, yeah. But I think largely to the extent that there are differences, it's because editors assign, assign people, people in that way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there are all kinds of essentialist notions. I mean, I was fascinated when I was looking some years ago at the way in which NBC targeted women to watch the Olympics. And it's formula for right or wrong, which I think they trialed in the LA games in 84, but really got going in 92 with Barcelona, which, is, which was, you know, get away from statistics, because that's baseball and football, right. and that's men's occupied terrain. Right. And get into how did they break their leg, right. were they a drug addict, right. who were their mother and father. Human profiles. That this right. is the way to get right. women's right. interest. And right. so they invested vast amounts of money in this. And then they discovered, guess what, it takes you months to do it. And by the time you've chosen your selected stars, She's they, out. they're out. They're out of the competition. <laughs> right. They're injured. Right. They weren't selected. They've dropped out. Right. And right. it was really hard to do because what this involved was massive research. Right. Actually, right. very interesting to be able to produce that kind right. of profile. Now, what kind of sports stories do you actually enjoy reading? I mean, do you like reading the stories that are all about the strategy and sort of the play-by-play -play cover? and mm. the scores, mm -hmm. or do you like the... I like uh, male gossip. You know, so um, <laughs> I, since I've been here in Norway, the first three nights I was here, I was staying with our friend Rinne Ottersen, and I watched uh, football, as in soccer, male gossip programs oh, yeah. in Norwegian. Oh, well, uh, there with you him. go. And occasionally he would try to translate, and I'd say, actually, not so much. I don't need, you know, I don't care. Because I don't like American football. I never I enjoyed see. it in all my right. years living there. I would sit and watch the gossip. I couldn't watch the game because I yeah. didn't like it. But I loved the guys just sitting down, shooting the crap. I had no idea what they were talking about. Right. It just easily been in Norwegian for me. But I enjoyed the phatic aspects of communication. Oh, so well, it's all about phatic communication. Right. So the stats can matter, yes. And they're interesting to me, but right. so is the, not even human interest, it's just the way people talk to one another. Right. That interests me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. I mean, yeah. right. I'm not really so much a hardcore sports fan the way you are, um, and know very little about sports. So I have to say that there's a part of me that when I read sports stories. First of all, I'm just looking for a really good story. A good story, whatever the topic is, right? Whatever the sport is, but I find it very difficult to see how a story that's just about the play-by-play, -play, you know, first yeah. this happened yeah. and then that happened. Just and, the facts, man. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How that can actually be made into a really good story. Yeah. So I like ones that have a good line, and those tend to be human interest stories. And then I hate to fall into the sort of woman's notion of what is going to be necessary to attract women audiences, but I have to say... But, know, well, it's it an interesting question, yeah. isn't it? I mean, this notion of hard versus soft news, it's very sexualized, for one thing, isn't it? And, and oh, it's the words totally, absolutely. are really sexualized, and when it comes to these war correspondents, conf right. conflict reporters, whatever we call them, one of the things you emphasized for us today was that in your, I don't know, maybe dozen examples across more than 150 years of history in the Anglo world, mostly US as we said, that 
who these women are sleeping with is part of their professional profile in the way that they're understood, the, the discourse circling around them. Right. And I thought of that in the context of somebody I was actually watching on the screen in this hotel earlier on CNN, which is on the screen just behind Linda, which was Christiane Amanpour, mm-hmm. and the way that the gossip circuit around her alleged romances is so powerful, or, and, and that is not the case when it comes to the vast majority of male foreign correspondents, whatever we call right. or men foreign correspondents, whatever we call right. You know that I feel I feel as though in that sense nothing's been achieved. Uh, Judith Miller would be another interesting example from the New York Times. Right. The New York Times. Was there discussion about her sexual activity? Whoops, sorry, yeah, big time. Oh, I somehow missed that. But, um, well, here, here's my idea, and I'd love to hear your yeah. thoughts on this, um, which is that both for women and men, reporting on war is really scary. And what we know is that um, both men and women who are covering war drink a lot. I mean, that's one way of coping with stress. And although women in the non-journalism context tend to drink, far less than men in the non-journalism context. As reporters, women are drinking just as much as men, if not maybe a little bit more. Um, But secondly, a way to deal with the stress is having sex. And so I've heard. So you've heard. I've okay. read about this. Well, as an older person, let me just assure you that it is a good way of dealing with stress. Um, I mean, I, one of the points I was making about um, a woman who covered the Spanish-American War um, is that she was accused by James Krillman, and but he probably spoke for other men at the time you know, that her very presence would uh, cause the horrible and maybe even disastrous, maybe fatal leaking of military secrets that as a woman she couldn't be be trusted. But the rustle of skirts the meant ru- the yes, leaking of stories. Said the it's even very physiological. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think um, the, the notion really was that she would be having sex with male soldiers or maybe even military leaders and they would say things to her. Um, Presumably a lot of reporters were having sex with one another and that also included male journalists. They just don't admit to their fears and everyone takes for granted that men as soldiers, as military leaders, and actually as reporters are going to be having sex with local women, imported prostitutes, sex slaves that are literally brought along with troops as it's so going on comfort now. women. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So there will be, and there will be not, not only that kind of institutional rape, if you, if you like, but well, not if you like, but you know what I mean, but individual rape as well. Right. But apart from that, I guess what you're alluding to when you talk about the women drinking a lot, the men drinking a lot, is that, you know, they've, they've had a rough, scary time where they might die. 
Exactly. And it's late at night, and you've shared your story, and you've met your deadline, and how about it? Right? Yeah. No, I mean, I just can't imagine how, first of all, anyone would become a soldier, but I can't really even imagine not being a adrenaline thrill seeker, uh, being a war reporter. But for those people who have that kind of personality type, it's still going to be scary, and you're still going to look for um, sources of comfort, and just in case they die from a drone attack, because a tonight, bomb, because tomorrow right. we may be dead. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a, an adrenaline connection there, and so at one level, you're you're saying that these stories that you chronicle are sexism. At another level, the fact that they're told is sexist, but what they describe may be shared equally among Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I certainly, as someone who does a little bit of thinking about gender and studies gender and media issues in various contexts, um, I think there are gendered issues that have emerged over time, and I'm not saying that all women reporters have tried to be exactly like all men who are doing yeah. reporting. Yeah. Um, I, I think I happen to think that very little of it is about uh, gender, and again, even less of it is about sex differences. Right. But, there, but there is that aspect. But certainly, I think in large part. In that context, at least, mm. men and women are facing very similar challenges, very similar fears. Um, they're they're dealing with the unwillingness of military yeah. leaders and again ordinary soldiers yeah. to share information. They're dealing with ethical problems and how to deal with the enemy versus the troops that represent their right. own right. national background do this fairly. Yeah. Um, those are all the same for men and, yeah, women, men and women doing it. Now, you've alluded to the fact that you've done some work on gender, and in fact you were very modest about that, but uh, really was a lot, and of a very important nature, and I wondered if maybe we could take a step back from the current research mm -hmm. into... I'm, I'm watching my language now because uh -oh. of this male-female, uh -oh. man-woman yeah, thing. Because right. you've signed me on, and I've got to <laughs> Good, work out. Right. I've got to stick by what I signed right. on to, even though I don't that's know what right. it really You're, is. No, that, that's, uh, that's okay. You'll be safe with could this you, manifesto. Could you take us back, 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 uh, and talk a bit about some of the books you've edited and written that touch on gender issues? Just outline for people what those are, where they might find them, and the angles of inclination that you adopt. Yeah. Can you remember? Uh, I on. sort of. I, for those of you who are listening to this, I've just given a, a grimace indicating <laughs> that this is not exactly my style. Um, well, Cindy Carter and I, you were a colleague at Carter's. Yeah, although um, writing as Cynthia Carter, I should say. Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, and she may even have a middle initial. I always forget. L? Some people, I don't know what it is. Everyone's got L as a middle initial. You've just got it as the first yeah, one. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a middle name, but I've never used my middle name or my middle initial. Really? Which is a little weird because there is another Linda Steiner who 
teaches media studies at a university in California. She also doesn't use a middle initial or a middle name. And she's like really weird. She does kind of new age stuff. And I'm always a little concerned that people will Google one of us and come up with the other and that this is going to be You'll get invited fatal. along to some hippie shit event to well, speak about orbs and how to rub them. Well, that, I guess that would be good. But what if I want to be dean someplace and oh, the yeah. search committee comes up with her and thinks, right. no, no, no. Freakazoid. We don't exactly. want that Exactly. It could be disastrous. So bad and good Linda. Yeah. I have to get the, the other Linda Steiner into the podcast. Well, well, that would be fun. That would be fun. In fact, I think we need a three-hander. I think we need... Yeah. Let's channel, since she's a hippie, right. the other Linda Steiner <laughs> from California. Here's an yeah. Anyhow, so this is not you, uh, but imagine it is right. you just for a second. Yes, and exactly. In, in that persona... Yeah. Um, so Cynthia Carter and I have uh, <laughs> edited a couple of books um, that look primarily at representations and how both assumptions about gender as well as assumptions uh, about sex differences sort of over-determine representations of women and men in both news coverage and in popular culture, and how that also uh, somehow over-determines women's status in media professions. Again, journalism, film, television. Um, this is, by the way, another one of my um, pet peeves, and I'm going to develop a manifesto, and then I hope you will help No, me I'm signed on for this as well already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't even know what it is. Yeah. Believe me, I'm, so, I'm a, yeah. tonight I'm signing. <laughs> So my other my other uh, issue is the the conflation of the word uh, journalism with media. It drives me crazy when when people and especially when journalists themselves describe themselves as the media because. Uh, from my point of view, the media refers to comic books, book publishing, entertainment television, entertainment film. Foucault as well as included universities. Uh, sure, absolutely. I think that's right, smart. right. And so my theory about yeah. this is that this actually represented a a conspiracy in the Nixon administration. To uh, which had quite a few going. Well, by he the way. did. So this is one more. So my my notion, and I've been trying to get a graduate student to write a dissertation on this for 15 years, but so far I haven't convinced anyone. Um, this was to to get people to think of journalists as the media and again even better to get journalists themselves to think of themselves as the media and not use the word the press was a way to marginalize journalists and to decenter their authority um, because after all it's the press that 
specifically enjoys First Amendment protection, not the media. And when we can sort of lump journalism together with all of the other media as having no special privileges, no special rights, no special responsibilities either, it's a way to think of themselves as not particularly important. Um, so this this is a distinction that I think we ought to revive, um, just so that it reminds journalists of, again, both their responsibilities as well as their rights uh, under their personal law, which was one of 27. <laughs> Count them. <laughs> um, so there we go. So there are these. Uh, there are now, these does that sound elitist to you to want to make a distinction between journalists and, and no? Media? I think it's interesting. Uh, I haven't thought it through, obviously, because you've only just introduced it. But I've been wondering about this term, the press, for a long time. In that, there's something about it that, to me, means print. printing press. Print. Right. And historically, I've conceived of it simply as newspapers and magazines. Right. Um, probably non-fiction, probably factual. Right. And a certain kind of journalism, but only one kind, and one of the media. Uh, right? That's how I've conceived it. Yes, press. and I think that is why a lot of people... Kind of common sense. Right, yeah. A lot of people would agree with you and say that's a reason not to use that kind of old-fashioned term because it refers to the printing press and... Um, but I see it as just metaphorical. No, I understand, and I think that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, it could be a metonym, it could be a synecdoche, but I also think one could say journalism. Or journalism, that's Would be right. fine. But right. I agree with you, and I haven't thought about this either, that the slippage between that and the media is absurd, because the media include, you know, a five-minute cartoon. Uh, right. And a card game. I mean, they're... Their forms of generating communication. Right. Right. And right. so, for me, it's silly to slam these together. And certainly, the way in which the Republican Party and its servants exactly. in the bourgeois media exactly. have used the term media right. is to, uh, in a sense, cheapen and marginalise exactly. journalism. Exactly. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Exactly. And interestingly, I, I, without having historicised it for myself, wouldn't have thought of it as being so far back as Nixon, but of course Nixon is the era of claiming there's the silent majority that's not represented by the liberal establishment by which he means Jews, right? Right. And young people who are taking drugs and all the rest of it. I mean, that logic of right. we appeal to real Americans, right. and then there are these other non-Billy Graham types right. who are the problem. Right. And that certainly is right. Nixonian. And it's also an era in which of course, Nixon himself wanted to attack journalists, people who were involved in the production of news. But it's also at a time when entertainment media take on a kind of villainous role in the popular imaginary. So lots of people are concerned about the representation uh, and the sort of tolerance of drugs and sexuality and right. homosexuality and film and television and, yeah. you know, what you're showing people, you know, without their clothes or their smoking or whatever they're doing. So to lump this together as one sort of 
immoral group of yeah left wing California yeah. bad people yeah. 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 makes yeah. sense of his sense. point of view. You're still though cleverly steering us away from. <laughs> so you got that, didn't you? I, no, I, look, I may look stupid, but so these books with Cindy. Can you tell us their names? Uh, one is called um, the. Uh, it's called Media and Gender, yeah. um, and that's a slightly older edition. And then just two years ago, right. um, we published. Um, with Lisa McLaughlin of yes. Miami University, uh, the Rutledge Companion to Media and Gender. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Cindy and Lisa are both down to be podcast victims, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Or co-conspirators right. with you. Okay. Maybe that's what we should do. Yeah. We should have Lisa and Cindy and you together next time. Well, we could do Think that. Think about that. That would that's really right. be fun. That's right. But you've also um, written, co-authored some books and lots of articles. Can you tell us a bit about some of those that people might be able to track down and the themes yeah. that you've been pursuing? Well, the, the book that um, um, is actually going off to the publisher next week, oh, literally, okay. um, yeah, is a uh, handbook on gender and war. Right. And um, it's being put together by with, with essays by people from all over the world about gender and war. Fancy that. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was going to be left-handed, red-headed people <laughs> yeah. playing boo, right. but apparently um, not. And, I mean, it, there are some really fascinating um, chapters, um, in particular, about um, how how the military has used uh, women and women as sexual objects to both reward and to uh, recruit soldiers, um, as well as some of the gendered implications for um, uh, treatment of refugees, for people who are suffering the aftermath of war, for especially soldiers uh, returning to the United States, um, and I don't, I don't know how it is in other countries, but one of the chapters has some incredibly powerful data about how um, the, the military is both under, underestimating mm. how the problems of soldiers, like post-traumatic distress and other instances of drug taking, uh, committing suicide, domestic violence, domestic violence, Substance other kinds of crime, is really is a result of repeated and extended deployments. Um, Dehumanizing killing. Just that they're exposed to horrible situations for so long, they come back, maybe, um, but for too briefly. And now is putting the burden of care on the soldiers themselves or on their families without providing any services to those families. So, um, obviously, there are women in the military in the United States and elsewhere, too, 
Um, but still, most of the soldiers who are returning are men, just statistically speaking, and their wives are being made responsible for their care and their rehabilitation, and they don't have the resources for that, and they're also trying to hold down jobs because their returning husbands can't work. And, and look after sick. the children. And to look up, and, and actually that's another issue. It turns out um, children of returning soldiers are at much, much greater risk, not only for problems in school, but mental health problems, as well as even physical problems, when their fathers come home than they were when their fathers were absent. And of course, one of the factors here is that people who, up until the 21st century, would have died in combat, survive. And they survive with these horrendous injuries, right. be they right. uh, neurological, phys physiological, mental, whatever right. divisions we right. use, but the point is more people are coming home. More people are coming home, and yet the military is not necessarily spending a greater percentage of its resources on caring for them. Right, there's crisis care, right. but not aftercare for 30, 40, 50 years. Right. And resources also for the caregivers. Right, and they, they uh, there, there's evidence that the military has explicit policies saying, let's try not to diagnose PTSD, let's try yeah. not to yeah. come up with diagnosis of neurological problems so that they can avoid the responsibility right. for care. It's a, it's a horrible situation. And there are some terrible stories told by some of these men in particular who are clearly thought disorder but can recognize that something's wrong and don't understand why the government won't acknowledge it. Right. And we get these leaks that are incredible. To right. 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 Wow, that's a wonderful project. I mean, you say a handbook, there must be a myriad of stories and theories. Yeah, well, I think there are some 50 chapters oh, in, in this book. She's so yeah, lazy, yeah, yeah, this girl. Yeah, yeah. God, only 50? Yeah. What were you doing? Yeah. Um, so that's one project I'm working on. I, uh, well, it's done, right? It's the almost book done. is done. Uh, you know, it's just the introduction to write. Fantastic. Uh, it's always oh, well, that. Oh, everybody else had a deadline like six months before. Well, well, yeah, well, uh, nice. some, of, some of the chapters were kind of late coming in. Yeah. So that's a project um, right now with um, two colleagues at the University of Maryland. Um, one, uh, Kalyana Chadhav, who's in my own College of Journalism, and then uh, Jessica Bissek, who's in the Department of Communication. We just launched yesterday an online survey um, of uh, college women to figure out what their experiences are, experiences are of online misogyny. Um, and our hope is that we can not only get a sense of what kinds of experiences they're having, but just precisely how bothered they are by it, or not. Mm. Um, yeah. But to the extent that we can figure out that certain kinds of online misogyny really does 
bother them, that it actually chases them offline or chases them out of certain spaces online or it chases them out of online and in high-tech jobs or whatever it is that we could figure out some interventions. But our first goal with this survey is, um, is to um, just get a baseline sense of where they're going and where they're experiencing online misogyny, however they define it, and um, to see precisely again how bothered they are by it. And we got um, permission from the registrar to send out to a, a sample of 2,000 students at the University of Maryland. And yesterday, as I say, we launched, and the first day, um, over 200 people filled out that survey. So that, to me, ten percent response rate. Yeah, on the in first day. Hours. Yeah, that to me indicates that there's a lot of interest in it, and they want to say something about it. So I think in the last year, the bubbles really burst on this stuff uh, in terms of the amount of overt misogyny and discourse about the overt right. misogyny, so-called trolling, horrendous anti-feminist and misogynistic right. practices. In Twitter, especially, but of course, many other four that are less right. well known. Right. And extraordinary intimidation. Yeah. And I think revenge porn is also becoming a, a big real thing. Uh, which is illegal yeah. in California. I don't know about other parts of the country. Oh, really? But yeah, yeah. Re the, there was some, le I think I'm right yeah. in saying, legislation in the last, sometime in the last 18 months. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult, I mean, the whole online world is difficult for legislation. Yeah. Um, and, and the concept of revenge porn is, is a little difficult too. You know, what exactly does it entail? Um, when you, what are you giving consent to about being filmed, for example, yeah. with photographs taken? You know, because the, the private public space, the distinction between well, it is so much more complicated. Right, than absolutely. Right? right. So there's a large and complex body of case law over, especially the last 50 years over consent when it comes to being filmed when you know, are assumed to be able to know, that it's likely to go into the public realm. But what about when it's, you know, an intimate setting? Sure, right. I, I mean, I, I agree about the blurring of the public-private um, divide if there ever were really yeah, a divide. Yeah, of course, it's always been. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's always been a very contentious issue. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of assuming that when romantic partners show, share with one another yeah. uh, nudity or uh, photographs or moving film of them having sex or whatever it is, that they really pretty much understand that this is among the two of them or three of them well, or how many it is, that they don't expect it's going to be posted on some public, public website no, later on. And, and not unreasonably so. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes these things are done with a view to their being shared. Yeah. But then after the fact, if the relationship is over, somebody may no longer wish for them so to be available. Yeah? Yeah. I, well, yeah. I mean, as I say, I think it's usually a somewhat different problem yeah. where it was 
it was maybe even explicitly yeah. understood between be the consenting absolutely. parties that it's no, between absolutely. them. Absolutely. And I think at a common sense level, there's not a problem. But right. there will be problems when it comes to trying to make right. a law take. Right. When it, because these sorts of issues will come up. Right. Where there will be lots and lots of grey areas. Right. Right. But of course it's grotesque. Utterly grotesque. Right. This practice of but taking we, intimate moments right. and sharing them in a, a, a manner that isn't agreed by all the parties. Right. And I think it's very similar to other issues, um, certainly in terms of watching pornography or looking at pornography, um, but also perhaps even in terms of sexuality, that young women very often do not feel comfortable saying, I don't like that. Yes. I don't want to do that. And they think that it seems prudish or they're not hip enough or whatever it is so that they don't feel confident about expressing their unwillingness or distaste for something. And so um, I hate to see them sort of giving up on their agency. Um, but what kinds of interventions we can actually devise that would be yeah. helpful to them in either protecting themselves from the things that they don't want, if that's, or in resisting it or speaking up against it or possibly prosecuting someone who has um, done something bad to them. Well, we'll see if we can come up with something that works. I think that's, I, I mean, I shouldn't even use the word exciting. I think it's very important research, and I think it's very much of the moment. Well, you can do another podcast with me next year when we've done That would this be project. great. Well, Linda Steiner, thank you very much for joining us in the pod. I really appreciate it. It's My been pleasure. lovely chatting. My pleasure. And we'll see you when we get 2,000 young, eager beaver students from <laughs> University of Maryland coming back with their responses on what is going to be one of the really key interpersonal uh, and your public issues of the uh, last 80 years of this century, yeah. namely the way in which the private and the public merge even more than before, always a problematic right. bifurcation, right. as you indicated, right. Right. as a consequence of right. the sorts of services yeah. we've been discussing. While we're at uh, the language issue, we may just yeah. have to come up with a whole new sort of vocabulary to yeah. describe the new understandings of public and private and in-between yeah. encompassing spaces. Yeah, this I mean, in-between stuff. Well, no one better qualified than you. Well, thank you. And thank see you, you soon. <laughs> okay.